0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. It's estimated that less than one third of individuals with celiac disease are properly diagnosed. When those with celiac disease ingest gluten, an immune response develops, which attacks the small intestine, leading to inadequate absorption of nutrients. And if left untreated, Celiac disease can lead to a variety of nutritional deficiencies, as well as other serious consequences. Those with celiac disease are at increased risk for coronary disease and some small bowel cancers. For so today's podcast, we'll discuss celiac disease and gluten sensitivity with our guest, Dr. Amy Oxentenko, a gastroenterologist at the Mayo Clinic. We'll discuss the symptoms of celiac disease, how to diagnose the condition, and how patients with celiac disease should be managed. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Amy, welcome and thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Excited to chat with you about this topic, which is obviously a clinical and academic passion of mine.
0: Let's start by asking you to describe a bit of the anatomy and pathophysiology that goes on in the small bowels of patients with celiac disease.
1: Yeah, that's a great start. So, you know, really you need to have several things to happen for someone to get celiac disease. So first of all, they have to be ingesting gluten, which is the trigger for this. It has to take place in someone who's genetically susceptible. And I'm assuming we'll talk maybe more about that in a bit, but that means they have to carry one of the, you know, permissive HLA haplotypes, HLA-DQ2 or DQ8. And then there's this other categories, there must be some environmental factor that puts some patients particularly at risk at that compared to others, because we know there are many of us who could be genetically susceptible, but do not get celiac disease. So when one of those potentially at risks, meaning genetically susceptible individuals ingest gluten, and they've had some other trigger that we really don't fully identify, you know, in those patients, they have that gluten, which then is converted to gliadin, goes through their small bowel, presents this sort of antigenic response that obviously activates your immune system, your T cells, your B cells. And that triggers a whole release of cytokines that you can imagine those cytokines then have, you know, subsequent damage on the small bowel. So as you mentioned, the intestinal findings would include not only inflammatory findings, meaning an increase in the surface lymphocytes that you see, lots of increase in the chronic inflammatory cells of the bowel wall, but then also flattening of the villi to varying degrees based on the length of that exposure and the amount of that exposure over time. So that's really sort of the, the caveat of events that happens for those individuals who then may present to us in a whole variety of different ways.
0: We certainly hear a lot about celiac disease. How common is this?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It can vary based on where people live geographically, but typically we say in the United States, roughly a 1% prevalence of that in our population. So I think if you're in your clinic and you're saying, gosh, I don't see that many celiac disease patients, when you think of your patient panel, I think that's an important sort of time to step back and reflect on your practice to say, am I screening and thinking of celiac disease in enough patients? Because really it should be in roughly 1% of our patient population.
0: Okay. What are the clinical manifestations? So let's say in a primary care practice, a patient comes in What symptoms should raise a few red flags in our mind that maybe we need to look for this?
1: When we think about, you know, the typical features of celiac disease, and we used to call them typical, now we call them sort of the classic findings, So the ones we all think about and that we were trained to think about in medical school. Diarrhea, weight loss, malabsorption, bloating, those are the fairly obvious ones that I think oftentimes we do think of celiac disease when that patient is in front of us. But I think what is really important for the general internist, any healthcare provider out there to think about are all of those, what we call them non-classical features of celiac disease, because those are often the ones that are presenting to you as that initial sort of trigger to make you think of it. So what are some of those? Probably the most common non-classic, non-GI presentation would be iron deficiency anemia. So if you have a patient with iron deficiency anemia, really important to think about celiac disease in that patient population. I would say the group of individuals that I see overlooked most commonly are young women who are often, you know, if they are iron deficient, we often blame it on their menstrual periods and don't think about how that's also the same, you know, demographic who has increased autoimmunity that's also at risk for celiac disease. So an important group to think about that in. So I say everyone with iron deficiency anemia should be evaluated for celiac disease. I would say another really common one is metabolic bone disease, especially those who have premature osteopenia or osteoporosis. And that's a leading cause of, of morbidity in, in celiac patients because that's often overlooked. And then there's, you know, the, the patients with abnormal, you know, hepatic transaminases. That may be a feature and a manifestation and a presenting feature of celiac disease. And then, as you know, this could come to not only a primary care provider, but in through the channels of multiple subspecialists. They may come in through neurology with peripheral neuropathy, ataxia. They may come in to our OBGYN colleagues with infertility. So there's lots of different ways that this can present. But I would say, in addition to the GI manifestations, thinking about those non-classical ones, especially iron deficiency, anemia, metabolic bone disease, liver test abnormalities, and then I should add the skin finding that's not all that uncommon, the dermatitis herpetiformis, that intensely itchy rash that patients may have on their extensor surfaces. And again, that could be the presenting feature for them.
0: As I think back to the patients I have who have had a diagnosis of celiac disease, I see that it often took years to come up with the diagnosis. And uh, I think it's just because the symptoms are so varied and there are so many other systems that can be involved other than just the GI system.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think the other thing that's really important to remember is that probably 20% or more of the patients we diagnose with celiac disease report constipation as their most common baseline bowel pattern. So again, it Mm. goes against what we were taught in medical school. We see an increasing percentage of patients with celiac disease who are obese at the time of diagnosis. Again, oftentimes not because of the biases we have. We don't think about screening those patients for celiac disease, even if they have one of the other sort of core manifestations. So I think it's really important to think outside the box and think really almost, why shouldn't I screen this patient for celiac disease if they have one of those features that would otherwise be seen?
0: Right. Well, those are the common presenting symptoms. What are the more serious complications if this disease goes untreated for years?
1: The reassuring thing is it's uncommon to have those serious complications. Like I said, there's lots of things that can cause morbidity in these patients. I mentioned metabolic bone disease, fractures is really common, but I think the thing that patients, when they are diagnosed with celiac disease, most worry about is their increased risk of malignancy as a precursor to that kind of refractory celiac disease those patients who don't have improvement or healing of their small bowel will have ongoing symptoms and then again the rare very very small subset who go on to have you know potentially increased risk of small bowel malignancy probably the one patients will read about the most commonly is small bowel lymphoma I think the thing that I use that is as a great opportunity to tell the patients that all the more reason to have their goal be to be as strictly compliant to the diet, to do everything they can to heal their small bowel, to decrease that, you know, immune activation of the small bowel, which can reduce their, their risk of going on to some of those complications, which can be prevented by being strictly compliant on a gluten-free diet. Not all of them are preventable, but I like to empower them, you know, to think that the if they're compliant and they can shut down that that uh, immune stimulus that can be incredibly helpful in preventing those future complications.
0: You mentioned uh, the genetic component to celiac disease. Are there other risk factors, some more likely to get this than others?
1: Yeah, so we know that. Just because of, you know, the genetic propensity through HLA haplotypes, you know, we know that family members of a first-degree relative are at increased risk of celiac disease, and and that really comes into play when we are making a new diagnosis of celiac disease in terms of recommending that their first-degree relatives also get screened for celiac disease. So by that, that would mean siblings, parents, children, if applicable. So they are at increased risk. You know, those with autoimmune disease are also at increased risk because, again, this lives in that family of autoimmunity. So those who have, you know, other autoimmune conditions, I think we should have a lower threshold to consider screening those patients for celiac disease, particularly when you think of certain groups like, let's say, type 1 diabetics, who you can imagine the challenge of regulating their glucose levels if they also have some malabsorption Um, Issue going on that has been undiagnosed in terms of the erratic absorption of food products, erratic control of their diabetes. So I would say other autoimmune conditions, and we can go into more detail about which ones specifically I would think about. And then you might put it in the autoimmune spectrum or not, but the group that I always have a very high index meant to think about celiac disease as well are those patients with who are first diagnosed with microscopic colitis. We know that microscopic colitis and celiac disease are associated, and patients with celiac disease have a significantly increased risk of microscopic colitis, but the alternative goes back as well. If you have microscopic colitis that does not respond to therapy, you should really be thinking of evaluating that patient for celiac disease.
0: My understanding is that this can present at pretty much any age. Is there any thought in terms of what turns it on at a certain time?
1: Yeah, that's the million dollar question. We don't uh, know, right? I mean, patients can be diagnosed at the extreme ends of age from childhood, middle age. And we see, you know, again, probably 20% of our patients are age 60 and over. So that's where I was talking about initially. There must be some trigger whether it is you know some let's say it could be a viral gastroenteritis that causes some increased permeability of the gut that then triggers this immune response but many people can't recall right because again they have years of of having right. this diagnosis before it's come to clinical attention so it's hard for us to identify what those exact triggers might be and what has triggered it at someone at age 5 and someone else at age 75 is really tough to know and if, if we could answer that we could have better predictive models of mm-hmm. of when to patients might be at risk.
0: Yeah. I remember being taught about celiac disease when I was in medical school and that goes back a few years now. What's led to it getting so much more attention now in the past, maybe one or two decades.
1: First of all, because of educational programs like this, right? I think we are getting the word out through podcasts, through lectures, through the literature that we need to think about celiac disease in lots of different ways, not just the stereotypical classic symptoms at a stereotypical age in a stereotypical population. I think, again, if we think about the classic and non-classic features, and we have raised, I think, really good awareness of what those are. Like I mentioned, iron deficiency, liver biochemistry abnormalities that aren't explained, all of these things, and now it's on the radar, I think, of more primary care clinicians to say, oh, gosh, I need to think about evaluating this patient for celiac disease. So I do think it is increased awareness, increased education, I also think patients have availability of the internet. So when they have various symptoms, they go to the internet, they Google symptoms, and because of the number of ways that celiac disease may present they might find that among the list of things that could explain their symptoms so we have patients also coming into clinical practice saying boy i would love to be evaluated for celiac disease because i have these symptoms so i think it's a combination of patient education physician education and just raising overall awareness of of how it can present
0: are there various degrees of severity of celiac disease
1: there definitely is varying degrees of small bowel pathology meaning when we biopsy the small bowel in someone with celiac disease you know you've probably heard and this was you know f- fundamental in all of our medical school training days the Marsh classification and i was gone through several other reiterations of naming where you can have just some subtle inflammation all the way to complete villus atrophy and you would like to think that symptoms often Parallel that degree of villus atrophy, but it may or may not. Right? We may have someone with relatively mild appearing enteropathy on biopsy, but have pretty significant symptoms that could be pretty disabling, or for them, or cause significant malabsorption. So I would say that while you would like to think that the histology always mimics the clinical presentation, I've had patients come in with somewhat mild presenting complaints, and when you biopsy, their their villi are completely gone, and you're you're almost surprised that they don't have more significant degree of clinical symptoms. So I think there is some parallel between the degree of enteropathy and the clinical manifestations, but I've seen all sorts of combinations where that's not always true. Okay.
0: So we're seeing a patient in our office and we suspect they may have celiac disease. How do we start the evaluation and what do we do to fully evaluate them?
1: Yeah, perfect. So I think if you have that person who has you know a reasonable pretest probability of celiac disease or has one of the features, classic or non-classic, always a great place to start with serology. So the guidelines would suggest starting with a tissue transglutaminase antibody, the IgA-based assay. And if that patient has never had immunoglobulin IgA assay checked, complexing those two tests together. So an IgA level along with an IgA tissue transglutaminase antibody. So that is the one serology of choice based on guidelines. And, you know, what they don't suggest to checking all of the celiac serologies all at once, just to, you know, check more is better because in this case, more is not better. You're more likely to lead to false positives. So checking that single serology and assuming that they have normal levels of IgA, you can trust that IgA TTG level. Now, I would say that's positive in mid 90% of patients with celiac disease. So it's not perfect. So I would say in the setting of someone having a positive celiac serology or in that patient who has a high pretest probability, but they have a negative serology, those patients should then go on in both of those instances to have a small bowel biopsy, or I should say an EGD with small bowel biopsies, plural, because we usually get four to six biopsies when we do an upper endoscopy to evaluate for this. So that allows us to confirm the diagnosis if someone has a positive TTG, regardless of the level, or in that patient who you have a strong clinical suspicion, yet their serology is negative. So that would usually be the typical workup that we would do in those patients, at least to make the diagnosis of celiac disease. What's been a common question that we have you know, been asked in recent years and more recently with the guidelines um, that just came out updating on celiac diseases, do we really need to biopsy all patients? Meaning if you have someone with a TTG level that's 10 times the upper limit of normal, isn't that enough to make the diagnosis? So the pediatric guidelines for a number of years now, have supported serologic-based diagnosis, assuming that you have, again, a TTG that's 10 times upper limit of normal and also supported on another blood draw with an endomysial antibody. Even the newest celiac guidelines suggest that for adult patients, we should still try to do a confirmatory biopsy and only consider serologic-based diagnosis in the patient who either has some contraindication, you know, cardiopulmonary or coagulopathy concerns in undergoing EGD with biopsy. But otherwise, it is still supported that patient adult patients get a biopsy for confirmation.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I've had some patients who actually have done some research and they suspect they have celiac disease and they come in for a confirmatory diagnosis and they've already been on a fairly strict gluten-free diet. Now, my understanding is the serology in those patients could be negative. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely. And we see this very common in the clinical environment because of that exact Thing that I talked about. They go to the literature, they see this, they trial themselves on a gluten-free diet, not realizing it may have testing implications if they've not been tested. So you're right. The serologic level may normalize within a, a matter of months in those patients. And even if they had celiac disease that had not been tested, their small bowel bio- or histology will heal over time as well. So When you're going to test someone for celiac disease, ideal, and it should be done, both serology and small ball biopsies on a gluten-containing diet to make sure you can trust those results. But that patient you just described, again, very common in our clinical practice. So when I see a patient like that, it's really a discussion of how important it is in that patient for their understanding and ours to try to make a diagnosis of celiac disease if we can. So what I'll do in those patients, that's where that HLA testing can become helpful. So in that patient already on a gluten-free diet, I will still check the serology because it may be that they're not so strict in their avoidance that their ser- serologic level may still be elevated, but that's where HLA testing, checking for the presence of HLA DQ or DQ8 can be very helpful. If they do not carry either one of those permissive genes, you can stop there and you can tell them you don't have celiac disease. If you feel better having removed gluten, you may have non-celiac gluten sensitivity and you may continue to avoid gluten if that makes you feel better, but you don't need to do any other additional testing in that regard. Now, if you check their HLA status and they're positive for HLA DQ2 or DQ8, then you still need to go on to say, do we challenge that patient, put them on a gluten challenge? 30 to 40% of us carry one of those permissive genes. So you can see that you are going to be going down that pathway, not uncommonly, but the power is when you have negative testing, given it really has 100% negative predictive value. So in that patient, let's say they have a negative serology but they have one of the two permissive genes, that's where you're gonna have a discussion with them saying, would they be open to undergoing a gluten challenge? Some patients adamantly are opposed to that, and that's okay, and I just counsel them that we'll, we'll always have that uncertainty about the diagnosis or not. If they are open to it, then typically we put them on minimum of a two week gluten challenge, but ideally upwards of eight weeks. I usually trust a longer challenge rather than a shorter challenge. And I also tell patients they don't need to just hoard tons of gluten during that time. It's usually in the order of three to five grams of gluten a day, maybe equivalent of a piece of bread, for example, once a day over that time frame, in order to stimulate enough of the inflammatory response to provide positive serologic titers, positive histology. So at the end of that challenge, that's what we do. We check serology, we'd have them undergo an upper endoscopy with small ball biopsies to see then if if that helps confirm the diagnosis.
0: Okay. You mentioned non-celiac disease, gluten sensitivity. Talk a little bit about that a bit more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. A really important thing in that patient who comes to you and is convinced they have celiac disease because they have experimented and found that when they take in gluten-containing products, they have one of the many different features of celiac disease that they develop when they ingest gluten. And so they may feel fairly you know, convinced they have celiac disease. But in those patients, we have them undergo the serologic study, sometimes the endoscopic evaluation. You know, We may or may not use the HLA testing in that case as well, which can be helpful But in those patients, all of their testing is negative, like nothing points to the diagnosis of celiac disease, yet they have pretty convincing symptoms that respond to gluten consumption as well as taking gluten out of the diet. So again, that's what we label as non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And I tell those patients, it's not in your head. You clearly are having symptoms that are probably from some other mechanism other than the immune mechanism that we see in celiac disease that's provoking symptoms. What I do tell them is, obviously for you, taking in gluten makes you feel unwell with, with, with whatever manifestation they're presenting with. I also, though, reassure them that compared to someone with celiac disease, from what we know, it's not causing histologic damage to their bowel. So while it may make them feel unwell, it does not appear to be overtly harmful on their bowel. And so it... That can provide a little bit of reassurance so that if they do decide someday to eat something with gluten because it's something they love and they're willing to tolerate whatever symptoms, they know it's not harmful to them compared to someone with celiac disease who knowingly ingests something with gluten who could have manifestations that can be compromised their health in that regard.
0: So those patients, because they don't get the pathologic changes in the intestine don't develop the nutritional deficiencies and from reduced absorption Mm -hmm. of nutrients. Is that right?
1: Correct. If they develop nutrient deficiencies, sometimes it's because they've altered their diet so significantly mm-hmm. that they're almost mm-hmm. self-induced from such a restrictive diet. So I think that's important. Even in those patients, it may be useful for them to visit with a dietitian to make sure they're not so overtly restrictive because sometimes we will see patients that have removed gluten and they remove this, that, or the other thing. And pretty soon they're eating a very restricted diet and losing weight. So I think it's important to keep your eye on, on that.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about treatment. My understanding is the only real treatment is a gluten-free diet. Is that right?
1: It is much to our patients' dismay. They would love to be able to take a pill. And I wish we had a pill that we can offer them like we do for hyperlipidemia or hypertension. But still to this day, a gluten-free diet is still the mainstay of therapy. And I think we'll always, at least you know, during our clinical years, still be the mainstay of therapy. And so that's removing wheat, rye, barley from their diet. And so when we make a diagnosis of celiac disease with a patient, Probably one of the most important things that we can do is send them to a skilled dietitian to review how to do that correctly. Sometimes patients are you know told to go to the internet, but the interv- internet is full of lots of misinformation and disinformation. And so I think getting reliable information from a dietitian so they don't overly restrict their diet and that they can make sure they're eating a well-balanced gluten-free diet is really important. So having them see a dietitian is key. The other thing we think about is just making sure that you have checked an, an appropriate number of laboratory studies to look for other things. So check some vitamin and mineral levels to make sure that they're not deficient. Iron levels, B12, vitamin D, you know, CBC, liver biochemistries, those sorts of things. I'll often check their TSH as well if it hasn't been checked because of that autoimmunity. In adult patients, we often will check a baseline bone densitometry as well because of that increased risk of, of metabolic bone disease. So, in addition to the dietitian counseling, the laboratory studies, bone densitometry, and then counseling them on first degree relatives being screened, that is the current mainstay. There are things in development, drugs in development, but you know, we always tell patients those things that are coming down the future pipeline right now are not intended to ever replace at this point, the gluten-free diet, those drugs that have been in development are being developed to say, could patients take these medications such that if gluten came into their diet in some sneaky way that they may or may not know that it may be less harmful to them. But again, right now those are not necessarily being intended to replace the gluten-free diet as of yet.
0: Well, a gluten-free diet is probably one of the most popular diets out there right now. And uh, I think that's good for patients with celiac disease because they now have more variety in grocery stores, more menu options in restaurants. But if a patient doesn't have celiac disease or doesn't have true gluten sensitivity, is there any benefit to a gluten-free diet otherwise?
1: No, you know, I always tell patients who, you know, some of whom go on a gluten-free diet thinking it's a healthier diet option. And you're right. If you look at Google Maps in terms of diet trends, a gluten-free diet is incredibly popular. But I will say you can eat a very unhealthy gluten-free diet. So gluten free does not mean healthy. And so I think you still need to keep that same lens of a balanced diet, whether it's gluten free or gluten containing. So I think what patients may find benefit if there's any of going gluten free, even if they don't have celiac disease. Again, obviously, in those patients who's triggering symptoms, it's helpful in that regard depending on what they're substituting in terms of their that gluten-free food, you know, could they potentially be taking less carbs in their diet, which, you know, if they have insulin resistance and those sorts of things, that could be helpful. But again, I think it's really important to make sure to relate that gluten-free does not always equate to healthy. And so maintaining a healthy, balanced diet is is really important. Okay. But you, you raised a great point. I think about even 10, 20 years ago where we used to have – to refer our patients with celiac disease to very specific stores and sites, because that's the only place that they could get gluten-free bread or products. And now it's really everywhere in grocery stores, online, and it's become much more affordable compared to days of the past where cost was a significant barrier for these patients to be complying on the diet. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, Amy, you've given us a lot of information about celiac disease. Can you summarize our discussion maybe with two or three key points?
1: Absolutely. I think first and foremost is just to be aware of celiac disease and the many manifestations and ways this may present to the providers that we know when to think about it, when to screen for it, just because it is so common. Again, 1% of the population Remember that with testing, the testing, which would involve serology and possibly upper endoscopy with biopsies and those with positive serology or high pretest probability, should be done on a gluten-containing diet in order to have results that can be relied upon. And then finally, once we make a diagnosis of celiac disease in a patient, making sure to get them the right resources, which includes a skilled dietitian, and then doing laboratory studies to evaluate them for vitamin and mineral deficiencies or other current issues and then make sure to think about their bone health as well. And then one thing we didn't talk about is just making sure we follow up these patients. We can't just make the diagnosis and send them on their way. We need to bring them back usually in four to six months, recheck their serology. Oftentimes we bring them back for a repeat upper endoscopy of small bowel biopsies at two years to show that they have healed. And then also making them aware that you know, because they have celiac disease, they're at risk of other autoimmune or other concurrent things to have that, you know, raise that awareness so that if they have any of those issues, they come in and uh, seek clinical attention as well.
0: We've been discussing celiac disease and gluten sensitivity with Dr. Amy Oxentenko, a gastroenterologist from the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Mayo Clinic. Amy, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. It was a great discussion.
1: Thank you, Dr. Chotka. It's been an honor. Thank you.